Hi everyone, welcome back. Uh, Taylor Miskell here. Uh, we are so glad you're joining us here at CBE Denver's podcast, Mutuality Minded. We at CBE Denver seek to advocate um, and advance the gospel by equipping Christians to use their God-given talents and leadership and service regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. This podcast in particular is another way to discuss the biblical basis for equality through the word of God and to encourage one another to develop leadership skills and spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. During this episode in particular, though, we will be discussing mutuality within the New Testament. Before we get started, I wanted to introduce our guests on the podcast today, Pastor Carl Helvig. Uh, Carl is ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, he leads the team for the ECC um, licensure and ordination pastors. Uh, he's the lead pastor at Centennial Covenant Church. He's the former adjunct professor for Denver Seminary and is an adjunct for professor for Colorado Christian University currently. Um, he received a BA in Classical Greek and a Master's in Biblical Studies from Denver Seminary, and he's also served overseas in China. So much stuff. <laughs> um, Carl and I are both Enneagram 7s. You betcha. Woo! <laughs> so hopefully this will be an exciting and engaging conversation that you can join in with us today about mutuality-mindedness within the New Testament. So welcome to our podcast, Carl. Thanks, Taylor. Super fun to be here. You know, I can't think of anything more fun as a seven who loves joy than talking about hermeneutics and exegesis <laughs> and dead languages. I mean, that just sounds like fun to me. There you uh, go. It's, Perfect. Yeah, exactly. I've I've known about, I've been connected to CBE for many, many years. I think I first learned about it as an organization when I attended Denver Seminary long, long ago as a student. Um, and that was the first time in my own Christian journey that I learned that egalitarianism or complementary all these words that, that I learned that they were things. I just managed to make it all the way through college without really necessarily being aware that this was a discussion. And then I found out about it. I was like, how did I miss yeah. all of this? And so it's been fun seeing the organization grow. Uh, it's been fun, Taylor, because I've, you know, I don't know, audience, listener, hello. Uh, <laughs> Taylor and I work together as well. And so it's been fun. I've gotten to see Taylor get connected to CBE. Yeah. Um, and now I get to be on the podcast. So, you know, here we yeah. go. It's yeah. glad to be here. Perfect. Well, I also know that Centennial has a podcast going on currently too. So if you want to share a little bit more about that, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We're, uh, we're dipping our toe into the world of podcasting, throwing our, you know, two little audio bits out into the vast ocean of audio that's out there. Um, but what we realized, and this was prompted really by COVID is as people have been more and more physically disconnected from the church, we wanted to provide some resources to try and really um, help people, strengthen people, support people in their ongoing um, spiritual growth. And so we launched a new podcast a little bit ago. It's in its second season right now. It's called Centered. And the goal of the podcast is to provide some resources uh, around developing spiritual practices, but resources that are designed kind of for your everyday person in your everyday life. Things that we, we hope and we think can be really approachable and accessible. So if people feel like, uh, the noise, the anxiety, the pressures of their world are, are just too much and they'd like to find a little more centeredness, a little more balance, um, we'd love for them to check it out. They can find it at ccc-centered.org. That's the website. But if you search for Centennial Covenant Church on any of the podcast apps, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, you'll find our centered podcast there as well. Perfect. How exciting. Um, so in the last episode, we discussed biblical support for mutuality within the Old Testament. 
Uh, for those of you that weren't able to listen on that, you should. Um, but just in case can't right now and you want to listen to this first, um, let me go ahead and define just a couple of terms to get us started. Um, the hier- uh, hierarchical um, complementarianism and patriarchal view uh, basically is men and women that are, uh, are equal, but men's role is to rule and women's is to obey. Uh, this viewpoint uh, was introduced uh, in an article um Actually, we can post this online too, but Knight claims is taught in 1 Corinthians 11, where authority of relationships of the father or over the son as man is to head over women. Um, within the patriarchal view, there is emphasis on gender rule and the word head, which we can discuss a little bit later yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and some, when we get into some of Paul's writings. Uh, but the non-hierarchical view of complementarianism um, or the egalitarianistic view uh, is what we like to call being mutuality-minded. This is not men or women, for that matter, standing in front of the other gender, but rather women and men side by side utilizing their God-given spiritual gifts to further his kingdom. Uh, Egalitarianism recognizes that there is no mention of subordination at the end of Genesis 3 um, for women's punishment for her disobedience. Uh, Another great reference to understanding egalitarianism uh, can be best can be understood and biblically side by side, a book written by Janet George. Who actually uh, attends our church here at Satanic Covenant. Yeah. And so which, it's awesome that we get to have her as part of the community. Yeah, which is awesome. Um, and then the inerrancy of scripture uh, basically means that we, scripture does not endorse anything that is not true or without error. Um, so we affirm inerrancy and infallibility because we know the character of God. So because God is holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, not limited by time, uh, just as he is just and loving and kind, uh, in looking at the word of God, it is important to understand the language and culture of the people of the time to understand the claims that the original characters of scripture and the writers are likely making. Um, This is why reading the context of scripture is vital to hermeneutics because languages and the meanings of words can adapt over time. I mean, I know like you mentioned this earlier, I mean, it is ancient Greek. (laughs) So there's been even some adaptations there, right? So Carl, my first question for you, knowing kind of some of the context and background of where we've come with the last podcast and defining some of these terms is why is understanding the inerrancy of scripture so important? Yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate that little introduction to some terms because it just kind of reminds us what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this giant, uh, every moment of every day reality called relationships. We're all in relationships with other people. We're in, you know, casual relationships and acquaintances. We're in intimate relationships with people we're very close with and relationships are complicated. Right. And so as people of faith, (laughs) if we want some guidance on how to do relationships, we look to scripture and we take seriously what scripture teaches us about relationships. But here's what, what, here's why, here's where inerrancy comes into that. We believe, I believe a lot of Christians believe, I'm guessing a lot of you listeners, if you're listening to this, believe that God intended to communicate something to humans Mm -hmm. when he uh, superintended over the, the, the bringing together of all the books and the letters and the poetry and the history that we call the Bible. God intended us to understand something. And so we want to affirm that the authority of Scripture rests in what God intended to communicate. And whatever it is that God intended to communicate, there is no flaw, no error. Nothing that God intended to communicate is wrong. The problem with that is 
the, as maybe it's not a problem. This is what God chose to do. But the problem <laughs> of, with that is God chose to communicate through human beings. And human beings use language that changes and develops and, and can be uh, misunderstood or understood in different ways at different times and different places. So as scripture was compiled thousands of years ago, and we're reading it now thousands of years later in a different language, in a different culture, in a different time, it takes work to get to that inerrant meaning yep. of the word of God. And to come all back around to, as we're going to talk about the work that has to be done to rightly understand scripture, we want to make it abundantly clear. We are not even remotely saying that we get to choose the meaning of scripture. We're not even remotely saying that the meaning of scripture changes over time. Rather, we're saying that humans always change every single day. And therefore, it's a lot of work for us to rightly understand the inerrant word of God, not because God has changed or scripture has changed, but because we humans are constantly changing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Um, and there's so many ways that the uh, the gospels affirm this too. And a lot yeah. of a lot of scripture is also told from a narrative and story perspective. Um, and we know that stories can just really resonate with people in a different way too. And so if we look at scripture in the context of, hey, this is a narrative, um, I mean, we're, we're reading people's stories. We're mm. reading people's understanding of what happened. And that's why there's four different gospels. <laughs> For sure. Right? That's a great example. Yeah. Um, so I'm like reminded of how in the beginning of the gospels in the book of Matthew, Matthew includes the ancestry of Christ and really affirms women and mutuality in that way too. Um, and this is really uh, different than traditional customs for culture at the time, because well, oftentimes women are included in that yeah. in that lineage and talked about. I mean, we see that in different examples of the Old Testament as well. Um, so, what are some areas in the Gospels that per- portray Jesus's interactions with women that affirm mutuality that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there were so many examples of what would have been shocking to first century readers about the way that not just not just that Jesus interacted with women that but that he interacted with women in a way that elevated their importance uh, dramatically compared to what was normal for the day um, the the example that really stands out to me is is Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well he mm-hmm. has this long conversation um, you know in the middle of the day when this woman has come to a well to draw water now to a modern reader we might be like so Jesus is talking to a woman at a well a I don't go to wells ever I go to faucets when I want to drink water so I don't even know what is meant by that B I actually talk to women every single day. I talk to my wife every day. I talk to you, Taylor, almost uh-huh. every day. I talk to lots of women every single day. So I'm like, Jesus talks to a woman at a well. Uh, what's the big deal? Yeah. Well, it turns out that the the layers and layers of cultural significance to that are, are literally almost impossible to overstate. When Jesus spoke to this woman at the well, it's quite possible that a bystander who was there would have assumed Jesus was making a marriage proposal to her. Something that in our modern eyes would be like, that, that's what, what do you mean marriage proposal? That's ridiculous. Well, that's because men didn't talk to women at the day. That's because men speaking to a woman at the well had all of this historical, historical significance in the Jewish scriptures where, you know, some ancient Jewish uh, men of faith became engaged to a woman at a well. So it's so critical mm-hmm. when we notice the way Jesus treated women 
in the New Testament to, to not only identify that he treated them well, Jesus spoke to this woman, elevating her status by recognizing her as a person, but also that we recognize the way Jesus um, elevated women's status was in a specific cultural context that, like we've said, we need to do some work if we're going to fully understand the significance of that context. Yeah, I mean, and that's that comes into play of why her, hermeneutics is so helpful in understanding the context of things. If you don't know what is the cultural significance, then we lose half of the meaning of what scripture is saying. Yeah, and that word hermeneutics, I love that word. It's a fantastic word. And just to clarify, I mean, kind of, again, going back to definitions, hermeneutics simply means the process we follow, some of the assumptions, some of the beliefs, some of the understandings we have, the process we follow in order to understand the biblical text. So let me say a couple things about that. First of all, communication, all communication, it doesn't matter what it is. If I, Me talking to you through this crazy technology called the podcast right now. All communication requires interpretation. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as communication that is 100% free of any interpretation. Why is that? Well, first of all, because every human being has a different set of experiences and understanding and biases and you know uh, uh, relationships that color the way they do communication. Now, in some instances... The, the differences between two people might be fairly small. All of us speak English. All of us are living in the same time. But if by some strange chance uh, uh, this, this audio recording lasts a thousand years and a thousand years from now, somebody listens to it again, I bet the words we're saying are going to mean something very different to those future people than what they mean to us today. So sometimes the distance in communication is pretty small and easily overcome, but other times it's giant and confusing, but it doesn't matter. All communication requires interpretation. And so hermeneutics matter because it, 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 it helps us say this is how we do our interpretation. Uh-huh. And hopefully, if we know all of us are biased or, or you know, live in a context to some degree, by naming our bias, by naming our context, and by naming our process, it's going to help us do communication even more clearly. Which brings us back to... The biblical text and if it's okay I, I just would love to give an example kind of specifically about words yeah how, please do. yeah please how specific do. words play into this um so i've got two examples so first of all i have um a two-year-old son i've actually got four kids but one of them is my two-year-old <laughs> son now if you were to come over to my house and my two-year-old were to be hungry which is the case almost all of the time he might say to you i want a fish now when my son says, I want a fish. There's two different things that he could mean. He could mean <laughs> he wants goldfish. Oh, and if that's what he means. Different kind of fish. It's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty self-evident, though, why goldfish means fish. Uh-huh. The thing is, if he wants goldfish, he usually doesn't say he wants fish. He just goes to the snack drawer and opens it and grabs a bag of goldfish. Because we decided to put the snack drawer within reach. But there's a second meaning that you might not understand. If Asa, that's his name, asks for a fish, he might also be asking for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) Now, why does fish mean peanut butter and jelly sandwich? In fact, I do not know. I have absolutely no idea. But I do know that is what it means because if I don't make him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, he climbs into the refrigerator and throws the jelly jar on the floor, having smashed it multiple times. Oh. Because he wants 
peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So the point of that silly little story is that words have different meanings when they're used by different people in different times and different places. And this is true not only with two-year-old hungry boys, but it's actually true with everybody. Now, how much more, if that's the complexity that can involve communication between somebody who's in my own home and speaks the same language of me as me, how much more complicated can language become when we're doing the work of reading something like scripture, which was written by people who spoke a different language and actually multiple different languages mm -hmm. thousands of years ago they lived in a different on a different part of the planet in a different culture with all sorts of different assumptions and this brings me to the second word i'll just use as an illustration um there's a word that christians are are super familiar with and hear it all the time and that's the word christ mm. and you might have heard you know this explanation before but the greek word christ literally means anointed one or somebody who's had their head marked or poured over with oil. Mm -hmm. Now, when we hear the word Christ, actually, if you were to just go kind of do man on the street interview and you ask people, what does the word Christ mean? People might say things like, oh, well, that's Jesus's last name or that just means Jesus. Like Christ just means Jesus. Well, no, in fact, Christ means anointed one. And Christ was the Greek word that was used to translate a Hebrew word, which was Messiah. And the word Messiah was a Hebrew word. It was a theological term for a person God was going to send to save his people. And then when God sent Jesus, he was the anointed one sent by God. And then when we knew that Jesus was the Messiah, Christ came to be associated with Jesus. It's this long history of a single word whose meaning changed over time. And so words matter. The meaning of words change over time. And if we, readers in the year 2021, in you know whatever culture we're in right now, don't pay attention to the way that words have different meanings at different times and in different places that can even change over time, there's no way we should assume we're gonna rightly understand the, the, you know, the original intended meaning of scripture. So uh, all that to get around to, why do hermeneutics matter? Because there's some work to be done and it's work that we can do and we can do it really well, um, but we gotta do it. Yeah, wow. Those are great examples, too. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, anytime I can talk about my kids, just bring it on. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, and speaking of scripture and hermeneutics, yeah. um, let's just go ahead and dive into a couple of the scriptures that do come up a Love lot it. in the, the New Testament. Um, and a lot of these Greek words are talked about frequently right. and trying to understand the meaning and to understand the context of the scripture passage itself. So 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16 um, I mean, one of the, the many, uh, I guess, uh, opposing view or uh, of egalitarianism, um, many accept uh, the hier hierarchical ordered trinity, um, denying histor historical um, orthodoxy. And so if we admit to um, ordering the trinity in this way, uh, this disembodies the Father, Son, and Spirit mm. as all being one in divinity. And I know we talked about that a little bit in our last podcast. Um, but one of the Greek words here is, and we don't actually know how these are pronounced, so I may totally Go bomb this, but kephale, um, which is the top part of the body or source, and some translate that as head too. So why do you, is noting gr that Greek word and Greek here so important, Carl? Yeah, so let me just, I'm just going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse Three to kind of give a, a sense of what we're Perfect. talking about. And you kind of mentioned it already, Taylor, but here's what, uh, you know, so this, this book, you, you, many of you might know this already, but 1 Corinthians is a letter 
that was written by a man named Paul who planted many, most of the first churches around the ancient Roman world back in the first century, uh, uh, first century uh, AD. I couldn't come up with AD. I was like, BC, and then what's the other one? <laughs> AD, that's what it is. And so Paul is writing to a group of Jesus followers, a church, and he's explaining to them all sorts of things about what it means to be the church, what it means to think about the world and put our topic today, to think about relationships according to the way God would want us to. And here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the question is, this, this word head, which in Greek is kephale, 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 say whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. What, what is meant by head? Okay, so here's what I did. I just went and I, I grabbed my Greek dictionary off my <laughs> shelf. I've got a few of them. It's fun. And that's the nice thing about words is we have dictionaries. We have dictionaries that record every single use of the word kephale throughout all of ancient Greek history. And you can literally read through all of them. I did not read through all of them. I would like to have read through all of them. <laughs> I've got three definitions. There's more, but this is kind of the three headline definitions, three mm-hmm. different sort of summaries. One, um, the part of the body that contains the brain. When we use the word head, I mean, there's a little, like, your head, the thing that sits on your shoulders. This mm-hmm. is your head. And when we talk about your head, the part of the body that contains the brain, there are some meanings around that that can have some sense of, like, if you bow your head to somebody, you're honoring them. You know, uh, uh, the, the head sort of has a symbolic meaning, but... When we think about it as the part of the body that contains the brain, it's an important part of the body, right? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Second definition, a being of high status, the head of an organization or the head, uh, the, the head coach of a football team is the person or the being or the entity, um, with high status. And then the third is the uppermost or end point. Often we would also call that the source, like Mm -hmm. the source of a river is the uppermost. It's the very first, it's the beginning point of anything. And we actually call that the the headwaters. I grew up in Minnesota. And so we would go to the headwaters of the Mississippi River. And it's just a small little trickle of a stream that turns into the mighty Mississippi. Which is crazy to think about. It's crazy (laughs) to think about. But so the question is, with Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, which one of those definitions does he have in mind when he uses it? Again, to just kind of contextualize this with a modern example. If I were to tell you to go get my backpack, which was in my trunk, I could be referring to my pet elephant, right? (laughs) I could be referring to the back of my car. I could be referring to a large wooden box. Mm -hmm. Presumably, if you were, say, in a parking lot with me, and I said, go get my backpack out of the trunk, you would probably assume I mean the back of my car, and I don't mean my pet elephant. You might just assume I'm not referring to my pet elephant no matter what. Yeah. But to come back to Kefale, how do we know what Paul was meaning when he used this word? So there's a lot of ways we can do it, but I'm going to refer back to our friend Janet George, her book, Biblically Side by Side, which uh, I'm reading right here, actually the updated one. It's called Still Side by Side. And here's a little test that she says. You take the different definitions, and you just try them out, right? So the word is head, but they have different definitions. First of all, we're going to assume Paul didn't mean the part of the body that contains the brain because it doesn't make sense that Christ is the part of the body that contains the brain of every man. That just doesn't make any sense. 
Mm-hmm. So does it mean authoritative leader, person of high status? Let's try it out. The authoritative leader of every man is Christ. Yeah, that sounds all right. The authoritative leader of the woman is man. That could be true. That could be what the scripture means. The authoritative leader of Christ is God. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm pretty sure that Jesus is fully God, co-equal with God. So I don't know if God is the authoritative leader. That doesn't make sense. Yep. Well, what if we use the word source? And specifically, we have good reason to think that it might not just mean source, but like source of life. Jesus is our source of life. Mm -hmm. The source of every man is Christ. You better believe Christ gives life to every man. The source of the woman is man. Well, if I'm a good Jew like Paul was, in Genesis, woman was created out of man. So yeah, man is the source. He's literally the place from which God created the woman. That makes sense. The source of Christ is God. Yeah. Hmm. God sent Christ. But does that mean that therefore the man is the authoritative leader over? No. Not at all. It's just referring to something that Paul already knew to be true. And that all comes back to, man, it really matters for us to understand words, to understand their, here's here's a $10 word for the episode, their semantic range, which just means the full scope of meanings any individual word could have. Mm -hmm. And it matters that we stop and ask ourselves, does this word really mean what I think it means? Which, of course, I must reference the Princess Bride. (laughs) That word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yes, yes. And that, no, I love that you utilized um, biblically side-by-side too in that too, but because that's a great way to explain why... um, it is so important to look at the words and what they mean and yeah. into context. Um, and then even further on in that same passage where we talk about, even in verse five, where um, it talks about women um, praying and prophesying. Uh, right. Why would Paul first say men have authority over women and then endorse them for prayer and, and leading and prophesying? Um, right. And we see all over the place in scripture, but one of the places um, there, there's a, a young couple that Paul mentors for a while named Priscilla and Aquila. They mm-hmm. both, um, their profession is tent making just like Paul's is. And at one point, Priscilla specifically instructs, has authority over, is in a high position over another young disciple named Apollos. And Paul doesn't have any problem with this. As a matter of fact, Priscilla is praised for her role of instructing, of taking an authority, a leadership position over Mm -hmm. a man. And there's no problem with that, which must mean that if we were to interpret the word head to mean authority, we must be understanding it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, For sure. And this passage definitely affirms the male and female differentiation, but not the subordination. Right, because men and women are, in fact, different. Yep. That's fine. They are. We, 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 we see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, let's um let's dive into some other scripture then. Sure. Um, so I'm going to look up here too. Uh, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. That's another passage that's often talked about. And words, we see the word uh, kafale there too, but also another word, agape. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and in several articles, um, one, again, which we'll be like posting, in conjunction with this podcast uh, by Kevin Giles, um, he notes that agape love is one of the noblest words in Greek. Yeah. Um, I mean, tell me what you think about this passage too, Carl. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the Ephesians passage just reinforces exactly what we talked about. But when you, when you think about the nature of love, and Jesus said it this way, love one another 
And in case we were at all confused about that, he, he clarified it because we were like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to love one another? He said, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. That's how Jesus defined love. So we say to ourselves, well, how did Jesus love humanity? Mm-hmm. He literally gave up his life. He gave up his power. He gave up his authority. Uh, as Paul wrote in Colossians, it says he emptied himself of his divine rights so that he could come to earth. So whatever we make Ephesians to mean, you know, the use of kephale again, like what it has to mean that we as humans are supposed to give up whatever power or influence or authority we have for the sake, for the good of others. We are not to exercise authority over people. We're supposed to serve just like Jesus served. Mm-hmm. Well, man, that actually makes me think I didn't believe in mutuality because it might be easier for me to just rule and have authority over people. But if you want me to serve and sacrifice, it's beautiful, but that is a, that is a high bar. And that's why I, I quite frankly think it's such a beautiful biblical image that we're talking about here. It's inviting us to live our lives loving one another exactly no less than the way God himself loved us. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're talking about sacrificial love here and that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And the best example for that, clearly (laughs) the only example uh, is Christ. Yeah. So definitely good to know. Um, well, I, uh, one more passage for us to talk about here. Uh, love it. First Timothy two, another highly talked about passage when it comes to, um, a hierarchical complementarianism view. Um, this one's talked about a lot. Uh, um, it takes the text clearly uh, as forbidding women from teaching and exercising pastoral authority in the church. However, if this is a universal prohibition on women teaching and preaching, yeah. um, then it conflicts where Paul talks about things elsewhere and even affirms what you had mentioned even earlier with Priscilla and Aquila. Like mm-hmm. there's other women that are leaders that are coming alongside people. Um, so where else do you, in scripture, do you see conflict with, um, some of the texts that's mentioned here? Yeah. Well, so one thing to just mention, uh, in regards to first Timothy, there's all sorts of reasons to understand that when, uh, when in the letter first Timothy, it says, and I'm going to pull it out again, because what does it actually say? What's the, yeah, here I can read it. Yeah. Um, therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for a woman to profess to worship God. A woman should learn to be quiet. Uh, learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach nor to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. And so in a lot of ways, the kind of the crux of that passage is verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now, whereas with our previous discussion, Kefale, we sort of asked which of the definitions should be used in this context. Here we have a kind of a different question. Paul clearly says a woman should not, you know, should not teach or have authority. The question here is, does Paul intend this to be a universal teaching that applies to all women at all times in all places, regardless of context? 
Or does Paul have a specific reason in mind for mm-hmm. saying to this specific audience that these specific women should learn in quietness and full submission and not have authority to teach? Well, if Paul meant it to be universal, then Paul's got some problems because like we just said, Priscilla and Aquila, um, some of the other examples throughout the Old Testament, there's prophets and, and judges and leaders of the people of Israel yeah. um, throughout the early church in the New Testament. We just see women in leadership and authority. Um, we see women prophetesses in the New Testament and the New Testament prophet was very similar to sort of a pastor today, somebody who spoke and taught on the word of God. Mm-hmm. And so if Paul meant this to be a universal prohibition, he contradicted himself and he never clarified the record in spite of all the writings we have. So that's a bit problematic. Yep, that'd be confusing. Yeah. Well, so then do we have any reason to think that maybe Paul meant this as a specific instruction? It turns out we have a ton of reason. Let's consider just a few of them. One, at that time, there was almost no way for a woman to receive an education of any way, Mm -hmm. shape, or form. Sure, probably some women, you know, as, as... surprising, uh, uh, you know, um, exceptions to the rule. Probably some women at that time had some education, but by and large, women had no education whatsoever. Secondly, um, women had no status or power or influence. And so Paul lived in a world where women had no access to any sort of uh, upward mobility and they had no education. So when Christ came and elevated the status of women to be equal with men, Mm-hmm. It was a radical uh, inversion of the realities of the day, which meant suddenly women should start learning scriptures on their own, something that had almost never been seen before. They should start understanding religious teaching. And therefore, those women probably have a lot of learning to do. I could imagine if a woman was in a church setting where they were suddenly treated equally, they might be raising their hand all the time saying, I've got a question about that. I want to learn more about that. Oh my gosh, which is great. The problem, and Paul actually talks about this in some of his other letters as well. In, in his letters to the Corinthians, again, he talks about orderliness in worship, and he talks about mm-hmm. the way that we kind of want things to go well for the whole group. Well, if women suddenly should learn and be equal with men and grow in their faith on equal footing with men, and that means that the men all know a lot more because all the Jewish men, at least, had memorized all the scriptures, had been going to education their whole life, and the women had none, the women might be kind of interrupting some of the big worship services to the point that it was detrimental to the group as a whole. So here's kind of the assumption. Maybe what is meant by 1 Timothy is it's in group settings where the, in, where the needs of the whole group are in mind. In those contexts, women who have not received any education yet, they probably shouldn't teach or have authority. Why? because they haven't had the time or the availability to learn yet. Mm -hmm. But we know from other places that Paul would love for them to have that. And once they do have the education and knowledge, by all means, they should teach and have authority and speak up once they've been given what God wants them to have, the education, the knowledge, the influence, and the power. And so, you know, concluding point, this is not a universal prohibition. Mm -hmm. This is Paul speaking to some specific people in a specific context with a specific purpose in mind. Which brings us to our modern application in our churches. Do women have less competency, less education, less knowledge than men? Well, certainly there's still inequalities uh, between, you know, opportunity for women and men in our world. But that's a problem we're trying to fix. I know for a fact lots of women who know way, way, way more than me about all sorts of things related to Bible, related to any topic. And you better believe I'd love for them to preach from the pulpit in my church, to teach classes, to speak and have authority in any of the many, many realms in which women have tons 
of knowledge and expertise and authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We live in a wildly different world. And so we should understand this passage appropriate to the world we live in. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you didn't know like the cultural background of the context here too, if you look at the Greek itself, it's singular usage. Yeah. Um, and that, so that in itself is like coming alongside, mm -hmm. along with that line of thought as well, um, of it's not a universal thing, it's within a certain context. So, yeah. so good to know. Um, well, Carl, I mean, I know our time is like running short here, but is there anything else that you think is important to know? I, clearly, you could talk about the New Testament for like ever because there's so many books in the New Testament and so yeah. many different examples. Yeah. But is there anything that you think is also important with biblical mutuality to note from that? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this. You know, Taylor, you gave me this question in advance, which I appreciate, so I could kind of think about this. But the thing that it that, that I kind of thought it would be worth landing on is... This whole discussion assumes one critical first point. It assumes that every single person reading the Bible has some kind of ballot, sorry, some kind of bias. Hmm. Every single one of us has some kind of preconceived notion. Every single one of us reads with some cultural lenses or possibly cultural blinders on. And if any of us wants to even remotely understand what God's trying to say to us, we have to become aware of our blinders and our biases oh, and our absolutely. You know, presuppositions. Yeah. And that's true in our friendships and in our marriages and in our classrooms and in every single form of communication, but it's especially true in reading the Bible. So I would just, you know, my encouragement would be to stop and do the, the hugely important work of self-reflection and just ask yourself, am I being honest about the biases I have, about the blinders that are covering my eyes? It, probably it'll be impossible for any of us to become, not probably, it, it is impossible for any of us to become completely unbiased. I don't know if there's such thing as a purely objective communication of any sort. Mm -hmm. But I do know that we can become more aware of our biases. We can become more aware of our blinders. And awareness always reduces the impact of those biases. It increases the chance that we're going to rightly understand that we're going to be rightly understood, that communication is going to happen uh, more importantly. And if what we're doing is trying to read the word of God, I mean, if we really believe that God who created the universe is trying to speak to us, well, man, what, what would be more important than wanting to understand that rightly? I'll answer my own question. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing would be more important. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's such an encouragement to the Christian church today as well. Yeah. Of, um, can't embody the mutuality mindedness unless yeah. you really take an honest look at ourselves and how we approach, um, scripture. Yep. Yeah. Well, thanks Carl so much for joining in on the sure. podcast today. It's been it's awesome. Super fun <laughs> to talk about scripture. Um, and thanks to all of you guys for listening in today at CBE Denver's mutuality minded podcast. If you want more information, um, about CBE Denver or this podcast in particular, uh, and or the topics that we will be discussing in the future too, check out our website at cbedenver.com or visit our Facebook and Instagram pages for more information. So wherever you may be, whether you're at work, driving, home, hitting the gym, cooking at home, all of the things, thanks for joining us. And remember to stay mutuality minded. Until next time.